My name is Bill Hamilton, and I'm a uh, computer programmer analyst, have been for 27 years. Uh, I've been studying the UFO phenomena for, well, this is going into my 44th year. <laughs> so. Uh, How did you get started in the UFO phenomenon? Uh, when I was a boy, I, uh, my mother <laughs> read me uh, these reports in the newspaper about airline pilots having encounters with flying discs. And I was fascinated because I had already been fascinated with science fiction. I was fascinated with science, with astronomy. I wanted a telescope. I wanted to study the stars. And then I had a new want. I wanted books on flying saucers. <laughs> yeah, so it kind of evolved from there. It evolved from there. So tell me about the California contactees. Well, that was in my early days when I was a teenager. I was fortunate enough to live in Southern California, and most of the people who allegedly uh, had contacts with UFO occupants lived in Southern California. So they were right there in my backyard. Now, one of them was a man named Daniel uh, W. Fry, and uh, he had a group, and this group had meetings in El Monte, California. and. Uh, I used to go there when I was a teenager and attend meetings there, and pretty soon I became a member of the group, and pretty soon I became even the vice president of uh, one of their units and um, also president of the Junior Sky Watchers of America. And uh, then I used to go and spend my uh, spring vacations and summer vacation time out at a place called Giant Rock, and I met a man named George Van Tassel. And George Van Tassel had a tremendous impression. Uh, he had a tremendous influence on my early thinking on this subject. How about the strange saga of Ryan Scott? Well, that came much later because, uh, well, a lot of time passed. I was in the Air Force. Uh, I had a top secret clearance came out of the Air Force, went to work for Aerospace General. They gave me a secret clearance. I was uh, hoping to become an aerospace engineer. Uh, that didn't happen. Instead, I got into computers. And um, one day I was you know, real busy with other things in my life. And um, suddenly I, I wondered if they still had giant rock conventions going anymore. And they did. And uh, so I decided to attend, and I started getting re-involved in this subject. And then it turned into the 1970s, and suddenly um, a friend of mine saw a notice that a man named Brian Scott was talking about his experiences that started in the state of Arizona back in 1971. And we were driven to find this Brian Scott, and we hunted all over the place for months and we finally located him in Tustin, California. And we went to interview him. And again, um, that was something that changed my life. Uh, because uh, Brian has this charisma about him, right? And uh, at that point in time, I said, I wanted to study what was going on with this man. And at that point, I decided that I needed to align myself with some group, maybe get a little training in this. So I joined uh, MUFON, 
mutual UFO network at that time. And actually, Brian became the first abduction case. Brian Scott was one of the most remarkable cases, even to this day, that I've studied. Uh, he reported having six abductions. The first one was on March the 14th, 1971. He and a friend called Nick Corbin were out uh, hunting for rattlesnake skins uh, at the base of the uh, Superstition Mountains in Apache Junction. And uh, that's, you know, it was starting to get dark, and uh, Brian noticed this funny light in the sky, as he said. It was kind of a purplish light. And it rapidly uh, moved into a position right over their heads, and a beam of light came down out of this, and um, uh, Brian felt himself being lifted into the air, along with his friend, wow. Nick, right? And uh, he describes this in some detail because he describes the tactile sensation of the mixing of the cool night air and the warm air that he felt. And um, he was deposited in some kind of a corridor. And then down this corridor came two creatures, and one took him and one took his, his uh, friend who had passed out. Wow. <laughs> And um, he spent about two hours on this craft, and that was his first experience. And I was totally conscious. Uh, they deposited him on the ground, uh, and he started driving home thinking about this experience. And as he was driving home, it seemed to start fading from his memory, like it was a post-hypnotic suggestion or something like that. Uh, and... Uh, the conscious part that he remembered was was the light in the sky and the craft coming over, and then suddenly it's gone, right? So uh, uh, it, it became one of the classic uh, missing time cases. Now, this happened, mind you, in 1971. He returned to that area in 1973, got abducted again. And then he had four subsequent abductions. But what was different about Brian was... He would fall into a state of trance, and um, his hand was moving like it was automatically controlled, and he was drawing these perfectly straight lines, perfect arcs and everything without the use of drafting equipment or anything like that, and these messages were coming through. And then these voices that were, co were coming through them, and uh, when some of the early investigators got there, like Kerry uh, Gaynor and Barry Taft from UCLA, uh, they made a recording of one of these voices, and they had determined uh, by analysis, and they had an oscilloscope, and they were playing, playing this sound that was coming through uh, Brian's vocal cords back, and they watched the waveform, and it was a perfect 1,000 hertz. And they had determined that um, this was unlike any sound that any animal or mechanical object or anything was making through his vocal cords, see? Uh, there were a lot of strange things. Brian started to change and um, had an influence on, uh, like Uri Geller, right, on metal objects. Spoons would bend in his hands. And, uh, we'd be sitting in a, <laughs> in a coffee shop, and uh, the waitresses and the managers and everything would, uh, they would be startled to see this uh, because I remember one time uh, Brian was uh, stirring his coffee, and he was talking to me, normal tone of voice, and suddenly this high-pitched voice came through Brian, 
And it said, this will put a dent in your consciousness, right? And he just lifted this spoon, and it just wilted like this, right in front of my eyes, right? And I thought, oh, my God, what's going on here? There was a coin, for instance, at one time that materialized around Brian. We looked at this coin under an industrial microscope, mind you, with 300-powered lens, and we could see that this was a very ancient coin. It had Greek writing on it. We took that coin around to every numismatist that we could find to try to identify what it was, and it was a very difficult job identifying this coin because it came, uh, it was used in some uh, temple, I believe it might have been the Temple of Diana or something, somewhere in the ancient Mediterranean, and that's how it was identified, very rare coin, and this coin uh, later on vanished just as mysteriously as it appeared in Brian's presence. So is he aware when he's doing this? Does he have time He's lapses? in a trance-like state. So when he comes out of it, is he aware of what just occurred? Uh, sometimes and sometimes not. So does he ask what just happened? No. Not that I know of. He just, he breaks from that and goes into something else. It's remarkable. And, this and I just... Uh, I lost contact with Brian for a period of 15 years, and just recently we, uh, we had a little reunion in uh, Philadelphia. He's living back in Pennsylvania, and he's now coming out again, all over again, talking about these things and the technology that he's developing, because Brian went from being a virtually uneducated man to uh, now he's a highly paid design engineer. He went through a complete transformation. How about the Arizona Skyways? Uh, when I moved to uh, Arizona in the early 80s, uh, I, I was talking about the various cases uh, uh, that I was investigating at that time. And uh, we used to do some sky watching over by the White Tank Mountains. I invited this woman that I know. Her daughter and her granddaughter came out to find us one night. They took the wrong road. They decided to park. They saw something glowing, you know, like a glowing dome or something off pretty close by. And uh, they had some dogs, too, by the way, in the car. They all mysteriously and at once fell asleep. They woke up 17 minutes later exactly, and their bodies were in different positions than they were in at the time that they fell asleep. What woke them up was a car was passing on the dirt road right in front of where they were parked. And it was a very strange car. They could see its lights and everything else. But they could not hear any motor sound. They could not hear any tire sound on the gravel. Very, very strange. And this alerted all of them that something had happened, plus the fact that Somebody said, look at that car. The mother thought the daughter said it. The daughter thought the mother said it. <laughs> and they both denied saying it. And um, the other thing was they were in a panic, and they wanted to get out of there, and they couldn't start the car. And it always started. It was a little Honda. 
finally they did start it and they got out of there. And the daughter practiced a, a kind of a meditation technique that she was familiar with. And what happened during that time started coming back to her. And later on, I regressed her under hypnosis and uh, told this remarkable story of how um, that the car was surrounded by these little beings that were in suits and they had helmets. And they took them on this uh, craft that had this... Um, triangular opening, and uh, she was taken into a room with all kinds of uh, instruments and lights and what have you, and separated from uh, her mother and her daughter, right, and taken up this ramp into another room, put on a table, and it was L-shaped, and it was hanging from the ceiling, and she could feel an electrical sensation going through the table, and... Uh, then a, a, a very tall being, about seven feet tall, uh, like a man with uh, golden skin, only had some kind of a, a veil or something over his face, and she couldn't see it. And uh, after the examination, you know, she was removed her clothes and everything and uh, put them back on, and uh, after whatever he did on this table with her and uh, sat in this chair... And at that point in time, he said, I'd like you to read one of these books. And as he did that, these books kind of like materialized right in front of her. And he said, pick this one. And she's looking at all these wonderful diagrams in this book and puts it back and they disappear. Really strange. And then he said, our time's coming to an end right now and you'll have to return. And she says, I don't want to leave. And she felt very close bond to this person, did not know why. And she was in tears in the hypnosis session. So that was one of the things that occurred. And uh, then other things were sightings, uh, started contacting people uh, who had been in the Air Force and telling me stories. Uh, it goes on and on. Uh, uh, that was Whatever Arizona. happened to the girl, though? Did any more encounters occur? Uh, she had a subsequent, one other subsequent encounter, and then I lost contact with the family. How about some, uh, crashes in the desert? Uh, this started, I started writing about this because, um, again, around the same time period, I started hearing stories uh, from ex-military people um, saying, you know, I, I was stationed out at this uh, Air Force base and... Uh, I had to stand guard in front of this hangar, and, you know, guess what was in this hangar? Uh, somehow they got a peek of it. It was a flying disc, right? And uh, I said, oh, this is interesting. And at first I was reluctant to look into that any further because of my own Air Force and background and security, and I didn't know whether I was going to draw attention, right? from the FBI or whatever, <clears throat> if any of this had any truth to it, right? But I did get involved somewhat, and uh, I met some people who had witnessed a crash, what are, what are called UFO crash retrieval uh, operations, and um, I reported these to, uh, I, I kind of passed these on to Leonard Stringfield, who was investigating them at the time. And as time passed, I started 
jumping into it both feet myself. And I guess uh, that evolved to the point of where uh, finally uh, the first one I talked to, uh, this man uh, in all earnestness, you know, I wanted to get his story. Uh, he told me he was a, uh, a private at the time. He was in counterintelligence at Roswell, and uh, uh, he told me his whole story. And uh, But his conditions were uh, that we had to be in a car, the doors had to be locked, the windows rolled up, no tape recordings, no notes. I had to remember anything he told me. I interviewed him for two or three hours and uh, found out that he uh, had uh, participated on two uh, retrieval teams one in 1948, one in 1949. And um, very, very, uh, to me, uh, it was an impressive uh, interview. And, uh, and then suddenly uh, new ones started to pop out of the woodwork, and I got interested. One thing led to another. <laughs> well, what's the story on these underground bases and tunnels? Well, what led me to that were, were the crash retrieval stories, okay, because they were reporting that the disks themselves, or even just the wreckage or whatever, if there was any wreckage, or maybe they were fully intact, were taken to certain facilities to be examined. And somewhere along the line, uh, these got taken to underground facilities. And uh, I started to learn about these underground facilities, but uh, uh, this came from a story that I first heard in 1980 uh, from a man who was working for a physicist called Paul Benowitz in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he was just telling this fantastic tale <laughs> of being in communication uh, with alien beings uh, and these alien beings had a base inside a mountain in northern New Mexico. Not only that, this base was run, uh, this was a joint facility of some kind run by um, our government, the military, by the Department of Energy specifically, who had control of this facility. And at the very, very lower levels, uh, these aliens had... Um, um, different rooms where they worked or, or did things and, and living quarters or whatever, right? And um, he had somehow started receiving communications from them. Uh, well, not just somehow, he was investigating uh, uh, various uh, lights and landings and mysterious activity going on around Kirtland Air Force Base at the time. And he had pursued this one uh, particular witness um, who was a, an abduction witness who said that the, these aliens aboard the ship took, took her to an underground facility. And that's how he tracked it to a, a town called Dulce, New Mexico, right? And I thought this was just absolutely incredible. I found it very hard to believe to begin with, okay? And it wasn't real consistent with what I was hearing at that time. It was, it was something new entirely. But when I eventually did go up to uh, Dulce, New Mexico, to check the area out and uh, get acquainted with a state police officer who was uh, witness to a lot of things up there, his name was Gabe Valdez, and he was 
very courteous, and he took us for a ride all around the town and to all the sites where uh, he saw UFOs himself. But uh, apparently what was happening in that area and how Gabe Valdez got uh, involved in all of this were the high incidence of uh, cattle mutilations going on at that time. And uh, he showed us the uh, ranch where uh, this was taking place, and he showed us a lot of things. And I became convinced that uh, it, even if there wasn't uh, an underground facility uh, up there on the Hickory Apache uh, Indian Reservation, that uh, something very of high strangeness was going on and deserved uh, further investigation. But then I began to find out that um, there was something to these underground facilities and uh, started researching this and documents were coming my way like the RAND document which uh, was a symposium uh, on deep underground construction. And now I found that there are several types of these underground facilities, but the ones that I'm interested in are the uh, scientific research facilities and the military complexes. And uh, I continually hear tales that there is uh, some kind of research going on, back engineering alien technology in some of these facilities. We've also had some of these facilities under direct observation in the very early hours of the morning. And I'm sure this annoys some of them, but you know we found our little spots, our little spying spots uh, to look at these facilities. And we have seen some classic uh, UFO phenomena right around these facilities. They're aerospace facilities, so we have to ask ourselves the question, why over a top secret Northrop facility or top secret Douglas facility or top secret Lockheed Martin facility, do we see something that looks like a classic UFO? I mean, like, here's a green disc, it's glowing, it's coming out of the ground, and it shoots straight up at about a 45 degree angle from the Northrop facility at 3 o'clock in the morning. Are you, are you telling me that nobody there knows about it? I mean, they're all asleep at the switch, or what's going on here? I mean, we're expected to believe that there is no involvement here, that the government doesn't know any more than we do about these objects and would like to ignore it all, and, and they do not consider, and they have said this, that it is a threat to national security. <laughs> How could it be a threat to national security if there's also uh, the possibility that there's an alliance going on, and they know what's going on, so they can make this statement. But all of these statements that they make are uh, very misleading. And then when you confront them with evidence, like the evidence that I show of footage taken from the, uh, from the shuttle, from the space shuttle, and you say, hey, what are all these anomalous objects doing moving around in the skies of Earth below the orbit of the shuttle, and then even going outside of the atmospheric boundary layer. What is their answer? They think we're all a bunch of idiots, right? Ha! Huh, you just see a bunch of ice particles or something moving around. Anything they could pull up like a rabbit out of a hat or something for an explanation, and it's not sufficient, you see. So what I believe is that uh, there is uh, something uh, which I have seen in a CIA document, which I have, dated 1956, and it states in there, the U.S. UFO 
program. And I asked myself the question, what is the U.S. UFO program? And I have tracked back documents, newspaper clippings, and what have you that I have assembled together, some of it quoted in my books, that say somewhere around the 1950s there were several classified contracts given to aircraft companies, to universities, what have you, to investigate the control of gravity. Uh, Michael Gluharf, I think uh, he was the son of uh, Sikorsky. Uh, he was president of one of these aircraft companies, came out in public stating, by the 1990s, our research will lead us to uh, manufacture aircraft that will just uh, be free of inertia, free of gravity, and will be traveling uh, on electric fields of force through our atmosphere. And, of course, I uh, question this and say, well, I saw the latest aircraft coming off the uh, Boeing uh, line, assembly line, and it's a 777, and it's a um, jet aircraft. Where's our anti-gravity aircraft that we were promised back in the 1950s? I believe that uh, with that work and with the fact that uh, some of the uh, work of a man named Townsend T. Brown in electrogravity and electrogravitics became classified, and I believe that there was further development, and I'm told by certain inside sources, even scientists who have worked on this uh, on the U.S. anti-gravity program, that uh, they were making certain certain breakthroughs. I mean, they were developing this through the 60s. By the 70s, uh, they were getting less and less failure. And by the end of the 70s, that is by the 80s, we had fully operational craft. And these craft could leave the atmosphere of our planet and have done so. So, in effect, what they are trying to tell me is we have not only a NASA space program with a dinosaur-type vehicle called the Space Shuttle lifted on solid rocket boosters and dangerous um, a mixture of, of hydrogen and oxygen gases, you know, that cause, for instance, <laughs> the Challenger uh, to blow up that time. But um, we have craft that are driven by field propulsion that can leave our atmosphere and have been doing so in secret and probably establishing bases of operation on our own satellite, the moon, and even possibly the planet Mars. So what I'm saying is we have a secret space program. We could be flying these missions to other bodies in our solar system at the very least, and we may be carrying these activities out in collaboration with extraterrestrials. And I find that fascinating. And I mean, the public is only coming up to the point where they may be able to accept the idea that microbes are found in meteorites that came from Mars. I mean, look at the gap that exists between that and the idea that there are intelligent beings out there and their presence here on Earth with advanced technology from an advanced civilization. It's interesting. That, yeah. It, it's fascinating. 
So how about, do the, does the government and the aliens, do they work together? I think so. Now, when we say the government, there's a lot to, lots of government, right? Uh, so I'm talking about maybe a spin-off, secret groups that were formed many, many years ago that are in control of these type of operations. Some people refer to it as the shadow government or the satellite government. And do other people in the government have access to this knowledge, or is it completely... No, it's very... See, when, when you've got a black program, when you've got top secret and above certain code words, you have what are called SCI, uh, sensitive compartmentalized uh, information, and you have what are called special access programs. And you have to not only be cleared at a certain clearance level, let's say top secret ultra, but you have to have the need to know in that particular area. So it's very compartmentalized. It's very walled off so that maybe an engineer is working on something in this room, but he doesn't know what his fellow engineer that he sees in the cafeteria is working on in the next room, and he cannot ask him or he will not be given an answer because he has no need to know. And that's how security works. And I know that also from first-hand knowledge because I had a top-secret crypto clearance when I was in the Air Force, and we operated on a need-to-know basis. And probably, even though I had a top-secret clearance, only less than 5% of the material given to me to read or stuff that I needed to know was top secret. Most of it was confidential. 90% of it was confidential. About f another 5% was classified secret and a very, very, maybe 1% or 2% top secret. If somebody, let's say, is exposed to this extraterrestrial, uh, a project involving extraterrestrial technology, and uh, for some reason, they break security, and they get this out to the public, then this becomes what I would call a special problem. And the special problem is, whatever he's saying is so fantastic, so hard to prove, and they're going to make it even harder to prove that once it leaks out, that, uh, and it's almost impossible to verify. There's no, because the newsman cannot go in there and say, oh, let me see this flying saucer you've been working on. And they would say, oh, sure, uh, we'll show it to you. You can put it on camera. You sign the security oath after you've learned all you, you know about this. You can't share it with anyone, and if you do, we're going to have to shoot you. <laughs> see. So. How about the secrets of the saucer scientists? Well, that comes about from uh, talking to certain people who uh, worked on this technology right. in secret and what they said. But what, what I put in there is what's real interesting is one of the first very, very respected rocket scientists, Dr. Herman Oberth, uh, he recognized very early on the performance of these craft would require that they had some means uh, of generating a field that nullified gravity and inertia. And this is why they could uh, uh, accelerate at 
tremendous speeds and uh, do these uh, incredible uh, turns, uh, like these right-angle turns, or come to a stop with hardly any inertial lag whatsoever. And uh, he realized that uh, if these craft are piloted by organic biological entities, right, um, that uh, this would be a, a definite requirement because everything uh, that's embedded in this field is coupled to the field and there is no inertial lag whatsoever. So everything's accelerated simultaneously. There's no sensation of motion whatsoever in that kind of field, just like you do not feel the motion of the Earth turning or the motion of, of the Earth in, a, in its orbit around the, uh, the Sun because there is some angular acceleration there. What the mysterious universe? Well, I just go in the, into uh, explaining that uh, uh, this phenomena, the UFO phenomena, exhibits certain characteristics that uh, will lead scientists to question their theories about the universe. And one of these things, of course, that always seems to come up is um, the existence of other dimensions. Uh, maybe the existence of parallel universes, parallel worlds, because um, there's this phenomenon called portals. Thing, uh, there are portals that seem to open up and people and craft or whatever either disappear into them or come out of them, right? It's your um, phenomena like the Bermuda Triangle or what have you, or on these ranches like in Arizona and, and Utah. Uh, very strange activity. So uh, we haven't another dimension to this phenomena, and that is some of it may be far more than just extraterrestrial phenomena. It may be uh, extra-dimensional phenomena, see? How about the alien agendas? Well, there we discussed it. You see, it's not easy to say what the alien agenda is because if you were to catalog all the different types of aliens that have been observed by witnesses, there's well over a hundred. And um, they all seem to behave in a different manner. So we have assumed that uh, this little gray alien repeated so often as, as the predominant alien type. And what this alien does, his agenda is to abduct people and uh, subject them to uh, biological examination or psychological examinations. And uh, that isn't true at all. I mean, they, that's kind of straitjacketing a model of what's happening. And there are some researchers that want to do that so they can get a grasp of what's going on. But if you talk to a lot of people who've had encounters, you'll find out there's a variety of things that are going on, a variety of entities that treat them in different ways. There's even entities that look just like us. They seem to be related to us. And we seem to be able to relate to them. They can articulate, they can speak, not just communicate by telepathy. They could put on our clothes and move among us. I mean, this is incredible. In other words, we have brothers and sisters, cousins, or whatever you want to call them, of homo sapiens sapiens that live elsewhere in the universe. Are you saying these people come down here to visit for short periods of time? And they then have dissipate? missions, yeah. Or yeah. are they down here for lifetimes, or both? No, they come down here for uh, maybe uh, anywhere from six months to four or five years sometimes to conduct their missions, and then they go, go they, home. They make up some They're existence rotating story. rotating shift. 
<laughs> you know? What are some huh? of the emissions? What would be some of the emissions? Um, they can be varied. I mean, it can be anything like, um, you know, study what's going on now with their, uh, with their uh, treaties or... Uh, uh, or just study the man in the street and uh, see how people Look are getting me. along, you know, uh, this kind of thing. How about alien, what does that leave alien magic? Well, the term alien magic comes from the fact that, and there may be real magic if, we, if we're talking about psychic ability that these aliens seem to demonstrate. But uh, Arthur C. Clarke said in his science fiction book, right, that any sufficiently advanced technology would appear to us like magic. Just like if we found some primitive tribe on Earth and we showed them a television set. Let's say, where are these little people inside this box? You see what I'm saying? It's like magic to them. Well, to us, a being who suddenly walks right through that wall, we'd say, how did he do that? It's like magic. See, and so many people report that. That's why I titled my book Alien Magic. But it's also a play on words because there's a level of clearance called top secret magic. So what is the message here? The message here is that we're under scrutiny. There is a presence here. It's an alien presence. It doesn't originate from Earth. And... The activity of this presence, their activity, is apparently increasing. It's spreading. We're getting more and more proof of this in terms of photographic and video proof, in terms of material and physical evidence, in terms of testimony. And I think that they're preparing us for a change a big change, some kind of an impact that this change is going to have on our entire global society. What that change is, what the nature of it is, and what kind of new, brave new world that this is going to take us to is still beyond the reach of my vision. But I see it coming. It's on the horizon. It's just like I see the light of the dawn rays of the sun, you know, heralding that the sun's going to rise.